Hello. And welcome to the Conrad Life Report for November 17th, 2018. Um, It is a Sunday early afternoon uh, here in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. Uh... A little late this week, but that's okay because there won't be a proper podcast next week because it's Thanksgiving week and we'll be traveling and uh, sort of um, out and about. So, and I won't have access to this microphone. So, there won't be a podcast next week, but there will be one the week after, most likely. Anyway, welcome to the Conrad Life Report episode number eight. Um, I hope that the intro sounded okay. I took my friend Pete's advice and actually imported a track, and I just just learned how to actually fade it out, and I think the fade out was a bit too abrupt. I might go back and adjust that fade out after I do my voice work here. You won't know whether I did it or not, because I will be doing it after I stop talking to you, but hopefully it will sound okay. Anyway, um... Let's see. We're one and a half minutes into the podcast, so let's get going. Uh, starting with books, I finally finished My Struggle Book One by Carl Ove or Ove Knausgaard. Um, I loved it. Personally, I can see why other people aren't that into it. I can see why people aren't into the concept itself, but just in terms of it being something where the guy just writes about every possible thought or memory and not necessarily a co- cohesive order, um, just exploring the banalities of life. I really loved it. I'm going to definitely read the next one, at least book two. I don't feel driven to start it yet in the same way that, say, when you read the first book of a science fiction trilogy, you really want to keep going because you want to know what happens with this. Well, I mean, it kind of bounces around chronologically, and there was kind of a cliffhanger, but not really. It was more just of a nice, beautiful ending. Um, but the most, the, the sixth and final volume of this series came out this year. It's in this really heavy, odd, hard hardcover edition where it's almost square. It isn't like a normal, taller-than-it-is-wide book shape. It's a square shape, um, and that volume is almost a thousand pages. From what I understand, it's thirty six hundred pages for all six volumes. So I've read four hundred pages, which was the extent of book one. Which means, if I want to read this entire series, I have three thousand two hundred pages to go. So I, the cl- completest in me, likely dictates that I'll finish this series, but. But we'll see. But either way, I'm definitely going to read the next book. I was thinking of walking down to Books Are Magic later today to buy the next book. But then I thought, I'll be near one of my favorite used bookstores later this week. And so maybe I'll see if it's there. Because it's a best-selling series, so I'm sure used used editions are all over the place. So we'll see. So I'm definitely going to read this. I Somewhere in a Twitter feed, or I think it was my old my old teacher's facebook feed mentioned the book um uh, julian barnes book not afraid to die not afraid of something something like that uh came out about 10 years ago and i remember getting great reviews and i liked julian barnes and i wanted to read it and i never got around to it maybe 
this is, uh, that was my spur to read this Julian Barnes book. And I haven't read a proper music book in a, in a month or so. So I might also get a music book to read concurrently with whatever I read next, whether it's this Knaus Guard or Barnes or something else. Um, music books, as I've mentioned before, I can always read at the same time as another type of book because it's such a different beast that, and that I just, and it operates, it activates a different part of my brain. So I can definitely read that at the same time. Most times I cannot read two books at the same time, but if one of them is a music book, it's almost like reading magazine articles while also reading. I mean, obviously if, as long as the music book doesn't become too deeply intellectual, but uh, speaking of music books, I, I never finished How Music Works by David Byrne. It's been my nightstand forever, and I picked it up yesterday, and I realized that it begins a little slow, which is why I never tore through it, and I started reading it in the middle, and I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So I think I'll just power through the, for me, slow beginnings and then get to this rest of the good stuff. I remember at the beginning that David Byrne says, you can read the chapters in his book in any order, um, though he did decide on an order. He presents one, and he mildly hopes you read it in that order. But um, I think he he basically implies he would not be he as the author would not be offended if you read the chapters in any order. So having that sort of way out <laughs> is psychologically comforting, and I'll go in uh, reading it straight through but if i if it gets a little slow i'll i'll just move forward to some of the recording chapters um so anyway in in this my struggle book um Knausgaard talks a lot about art um he obviously is a knowledgeable art um enthusiast and periodically his the his thoughts will no matter what he's doing his thoughts will turn to an to art and he'll go off for either a paragraph or a couple of pages on some thoughts and there was one discussion of art in my struggle that i really connected with which is um he discusses how abstract art doesn't move him in the same way that say uh john turner landscapes do and he gives a mile uh, he, he gives sort of a rough explanation why and i see his point and basically he feels that in order for art to make a connection, for him at least, um, there need to be apparent parameters and context. And it's with these parameters and with this context that you can then compare it to your own internal feelings, your own past experiences, and also your viewpoint um, of the world of, of just everything outside of you and your persona. Um, so when he sees an, a piece of abstract art, it's so abstract that it, it makes no connection to his life. It makes no connection to the world that he interacts with. Whereas um, a landscape by like a 19th century landscape by John Turner um, very much will move him to tears. He notes uh, because to him, it, it strikes something even subconscious in him where there's a connection made um, because he can compare it to landscapes that he's seen, but really probably more, I'm guessing what he means is just it connects to what our world looks like, 
you know, even on a superficial level. And so once that connection is made, his subconscious, his emotional subconscious can then make a connection with the art itself. And that's what he finds moving. Um, and I get his point. I've, I can, I can personally be moved by abstract art, but not as easily. Um, so I see his point though. And it got me thinking about musical set lists, this need for context and um, set parameters, because it's within these parameters that you can then, well, that then, then the, like special occurrences become apparent. So it'll probably su- not surprise anyone that knows me, that, especially as a deadhead, that I love set lists. I love. The idea of set lists, I love the concept of putting something at the beginning that works as a beginning. I love the idea that there's a perfect second song, that a third song, that a, a particular song might have the just right characteristic to serve as a third song of, of a show. There's a proper set ender, there's a proper encore opener, and obviously it doesn't have to be the same type of song for all of these slots, but certain types of music, pieces of music, um, have character that work in these situations um so sometimes with bands that i don't that i'm not even obsessed with i just merely greatly like like say u2 i follow setless because u2 just finished a tour this past week this europe tour of this this um songs of experience album um and the tour has been going since may it was in north america and went to europe and basically what happened was over the course of the tour, the set list evolved from being very heavy on these new songs from this album to slowly dropping some of the new songs and bringing in older songs. Um, obviously, that's a thing that a typical concert goer would prefer. But what I liked seeing was that they weren't just bringing in well-known songs, well-known older classic songs. They were bringing in um, obscure older songs, which is, I think, you know, probably the true fan prefers. Um, so by the time they got to Europe, after the you know in the second half of this this tour, they started drawing a lot from their uh, Octung Baby, and then and then after that, Zuropa albums. Zuropa is actually my favorite U two album. I mean, I love many U2 albums. Zeropa is probably my favorite. Um, and they were playing, uh, what song for Zeropa? Uh, Stay, parentheses, Far Away So Close. They brought that in um, earlier in the tour. And just in the past couple of weeks, they've been doing the song Dirty Day from Zeropa, which is not a household name U2 song, but boy, is it a great, great song. Very dark and brooding and mysterious and just very gray sky november europe feel um so it was a real it was real fun to follow the uh evolution of the tour set list bruce springsteen is another artist that does the same thing um if he has a certain tour that's say supporting a record the first the the beginning of the tour will will have a fairly fixed set list um dominated by new songs but over the course of a tour the the structure of the set list will start to loosen a bit um more and more slots that were devoted to variables will appear and by the end of the tour it's just 
each night it's there's a song or two or three that's it to, making a tour debut and it's an old song whether it's an old well-known classic or whether it's a very old b-side um i love following the evolution of set lists on tours um and speaking of set lists and following that tonight i'm going to see bob weir at the beacon theater and it is the penultimate night of the tour tomorrow the tour ends um uh, two nights at the Beacon. So tonight is night one, second last night of the tour. And he seems over this short, uh, I guess, 15 show tour. So he seems to have had like a rough, they've built a, a rough repertoire for this tour. Um, and it isn't, it isn't a case of what I've been describing with U2 and Springsteen, where uh, by the end of the tour, it's freewheeling. It's been such a short um, presentation that... Um, the whole thing has been kind of freewheeling, but with a certain a certain selection of songs, obviously dominated by dead songs, but um, a few more than his usual Dylan songs. He's been doing Hard Rain's Gonna Fall a lot in the past year or so. I um, mean, he's also brought back some songs from his Rat Dog era, which was like kind of his post-dead band. Uh, they actually started before the dead ended, but it's the band that he had up until the early teens, earlier part of this decade. And they had some actual original material, which were basically Bob Weir songs that he happened to write and record while he was with Rat Dog. And that's made its way into this set list. So that'll be interesting to hear because I, I like a couple of Rat, song, Rat Dog songs. I really like a song called Two Gin, D-J-I-N-N, Two Gin, like the number two. Um, there's another song called Ashes and Glass that he's been playing a lot. Um, which is kind of a bubbly, mildly pleasant, pretty melody um, with a lot of the signature weird, um, odd, odd riffage, which I love. So the one thing you can do if you're following, say, the evolution of a set list on this tour is I can see exactly what he played last night and the night before. It gives you an idea of what we won't hear tonight, because if he did it last night, some of these songs you probably won't hear tonight. Uh, most of them, actually. So got an idea of what we're gonna i can't remember exactly what he played in boston the last two nights but i remember thinking like ah this looks good this bodes well for the beacon show i'm going to um sunday so i'm excited about that um in the old days like uh the dead didn't have too much of a setless structure going up to 1975 when they came back in 76 they started to develop a setless structure that was kept you know kept the more jam jam vehicles for later in the show but then famously at one point they became friends with the um the noted mythology american mythologist joseph um campbell who is responsible is, is responsible for for um creating this the idea of the hero's journey and um i know that the dead hung out with him um several times and it is, seems to be that from their conversations with him that they decided upon, starting around the turn of the 80s, the setless structure that they carried the rest of their career, which was two sets, which they'd always done. But the first set had more sort of shorter contained songs uh, that were less about being vehicles for exploration and were more about playing songs, almost like a warm-up. By the second set, they included the songs that were just sort of larger and and. and and um, had more um, explorative 
possibilities. And in the middle of the second set, they had drums and space, which is first was like drums where the two drummers would play. And then after about 10 minutes, they would go away and the non-drumming members of the band would come out and play a 10 minute completely freeform space jam. Sometimes um, they would have an idea that they would musical or even just um, conceptual that, that they would use as inspiration uh, for the jam. And then after that, it would come back into the a final two, three, four songs of the set, sort of a return um, and then an encore. So they charted the hero's journey throughout this show. And uh, it's, it's that context and those set of parameters that make um, events that don't conform to that norm more special like if they do something that they haven't done in a while if they do a song that's not in its usual place or it doesn't feel like it that becomes special um when the dead members came back for their first post garcia um iteration called the other ones in the late 90s i saw it i saw it at nassau coliseum and the set lists were crazy because they just played anything at any point in the show and at that point i realized there's nothing special about hearing uncle john's band second song there's nothing special about opening with dark star there's nothing special if you're going to do these out of place things if you do them all the time but if you have a sort of loose structure that you're adhering to when you do throw in an an odd opener or something that appears in a place it usually doesn't then it becomes exciting so all of this i thought of um, when I was reading Kanausgaard talking about his need for parameters and context in art, um, because you need to break out of something for it to be special, I think. At least that's how it's worked for me, musical set list wise. Um, and in art, I see his point too, although I feel like my reaction to art is probably governed by other things I haven't even really thought about and explored um, what it means to me. But like, I, I, I think about art a lot, but I'm, but. I don't know what it is about it that moves me, but I totally understood what Knausgaard meant when he said all that. So anyway, um, continuing on, sort of moving into the musical section of 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 the um, of this episode. So had a few musical things in the past week. Let's see. Um, I played a show at St. Vitus with my band Garden of the Ark that I had mentioned um, when I when I recorded the last uh, episode of this uh, podcast. Uh, so we played that night at St. Vitus, myself and Baxter and Craig, and it was great. Um, felt a little more comfortable than the, than the St. Vitus show we played back in May. Um, it was not as freezing <laughs> for whatever reason in the room, um, which helped and just had a good time. Just really enjoyed playing. Um, as usual, I didn't look out into the crowd and to the audience because I just that throws me off. So the farthest I look is always the front of the stage. Um, but I really enjoy playing by the second half of the show. I was just having a ball. Um, our, our current set is front loaded with what are for me the most difficult songs to play. So I'm just head down trying to get through these four songs. And after I make it through the fifth song, is it the fifth? Um, thinking about our set anyway, it's the fourth or fifth song at that point i feel i can breathe easy and it's just like the rest of it is for just for whatever reason the parts happen to be um like i'm I'm very used to playing them and i can get through them easily but the first few songs really require concentration and they're difficult and there's like i gotta keep track of certain odd time signatures and um they're physically demanding parts but once i get through that it's great so had a great time at vitus had a lot of friends come um 
just like me it was just great it felt also felt great to play for a lot of fellow musicians just um you know playing a great show is 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 a nice just a musically fulfilling achievement um so yeah the garden of the ark show at saint vitus was great um i don't know when our next show is we're trying to possibly put together some sort of like holiday week before new year's um show maybe at threes brewing our local spot um and it would be an unusual we're trying to look at doing something unusual for this in a good way um so like stay tuned but i don't nothing's come together on it yet although i have put out some feelers anyway also played uh Brooklyn Bowl with the Barton Hills Choir, which is a group of fifth and sixth graders from Austin, Texas. Um, my old friends, Jack and Courtney McFadden, moved from Brooklyn to Austin. Their daughter is actually in this choir, but she wasn't old enough to make the trip. But the choir came up and we sang a bunch, we played a bunch of dead songs at Brooklyn Bowl, and they are led by my old friend from the summit country day school in cincinnati gavin tabone he's their teacher gavin and i were in the choir in fifth and sixth grade so this is a real real hoot that we got to do this it was a pretty special day we played two shows um one at 11 30 in the morning and one at two and it was so much fun and the guitar player was david gans who is the host of the grateful dead hour radio broad show and also is the host of um tales from the golden road on the sirius xm grateful dead channel and I've been listening to him since the 80s, and I was so excited to play a show with him. He's a really nice guy. He came in from the Bay Area for this show. And the bassist was Adam Roberts, who is the head of the Rock and Roll Playhouse, which they do all of these um, music for kid, these kids' shows Sunday mornings. He sort of runs it. And he is my year at Michigan uh, graduate, and turns out he was a member of this band called The Bucket, who were probably the hottest band in Ann Arbor while I was there. It's a bunch of music school students that did um, JB's, uh, Maceo Parker, James Brown style funk. And so, of course, like they were doing big on the party circuit, um, played all of the usual spots in downtown Ann Arbor, like The Ark and Bird of Paradise. And they played fraternities. Anyway, really great guy. And we just, you know, really bonded about Michigan and we bonded about Michigan football and we bonded about music and musicians that we friends in common it was really fun time and would love to play drums at another one of these shows so hopefully that'll happen i know i'm in his rolodex now um of musicians to play these but if you have kids and even if you don't these are just really fun shows and it's nice to go to brooklyn bowl on a sunday morning or sunday early afternoon and eat blue ribbon food and bowl and have a bloody mary or whatever really fun um so, and then we had Grateful Dead Night at Threes, our monthly Grateful Dead Night at Threes Brewing, where we Scott Devendorf and I and our friend Bradley Goodman, DJ, um, Dead Tunes. Uh, Bradley couldn't make it this month because he is, he had um, parent-teacher conferences. Um, he is the principal of the East Village Community School, so parent-teacher conference is a very busy couple of days for him, so he couldn't make it. So it was just Scott and me, and it was a lot of fun. And um, actually going to Bob Weir with Scott tonight. Let's see. Some Oliver updates. Uh, he had his last ninja class yesterday, which is essentially just an obstacle course running around a, a play gym. And it's tough because he kind of likes it, but 
he also kind of doesn't like it. And sometimes he doesn't pay attention. And the first 20 minutes of class are doing all sorts of like stretches and isolated activities. And he, it's hard to keep his attention for that. But when it, in the second half of the class, when it goes into full on ninja obstacle courses, well, then he loves it. But Anyway, I'm not super sad that that was our last ninja class because I feel like we can probably find something for him that he'll be more into, but it was always kind of tense because I could never really sit there and watch it and turn off, you know, sort of had to like always make sure he was listening or you say, oh, get up, you know, listen, go over there, blah, blah, blah. Um, But, you know, it was always fun to like leave Pier 5 or wherever it was and walk back to the neighborhood. Um, Drop-offs at school have been good. Um, he's putting up less of a fight, leaving the apartment in the mornings. And even when he puts up a fight, he loves walking to school. He's laughing and running the entire way. We're having a ball. Um, but he hasn't been as anxious or upset, uh, at actual drop off. So that's good. Um, hopefully that continues. We had our first parent teacher conference last week. Um, so we got literally got Oliver's first ever report card, which is funny. Um, obviously it's not, it's not about academics, Loosely it is, but it is more about just how how he learns, how's he doing, um, and then it's going to mark the progress throughout the year. But I guess overall it was good, but there's definitely room for improvement on certain things. Um, but he's very excited to go travel this week and, and go to Cincinnati, so probably see some friends in Cincinnati. I'm excited to see my usual friends um, and family that live in Cincinnati, um, and even... Even some people that I played with in Brooklyn at the Bowl are going to be in Cincinnati for the holidays, so we'll see. Um, let's see. Other than that, yeah, I was just like, here we are in the holiday season. It came up out of nowhere, but oh, and we had the snowstorm this week. Um, incredible, like, flash snowstorm that exceeded, apparently, all of the forecasts. Although most of the forecasts said, you know, they, they did offer a, um, a sort of arc of possibility and even though this was the worst case scenario and it exceeded that it's still like it still was within the realm of possibility so i think this this the mayor and the city really underestimated this and to watch the blasio's press conference the next day doing the postmortem he's it's like you know i hate to pile on because everyone seems to say the same thing but i mean he really doesn't get it and i feel like he only notices thing when they affect him personally um Anyway, it doesn't, you know, as my friend and colleague Jeremy noted, um, doesn't seem like he is pushing the city forward. Like whenever he leaves office, it'll seem like the city will be in the same place it was and hopefully not worse. There's this whole Amazon thing, which I don't, I don't really think is going to be great for New York City, but um, we'll see. And I guess it's not a done deal. I mean, the deal is done, but they could always pull out if, if negative, um, if, 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 all of the talk about it becomes so negative because, um, you know, why, why would they need that anyway? Um, let's see, looking at my notes, guess that's it. I wonder what I'm going to read. This is so weird to not have a book on the go, but for the next 48 hours, um, I'm not going to have a book except for reading like maybe this David Byrne book, you know, continuing to pick that one up. And when I go to Cincinnati, I'll be doing my usual thing of, I always try and like ferry back um a lot of my old magazines that i keep my old music magazines musician magazines q magazines old dead magazines i think i've gotten all the dead magazines back i've gotten about a third of the musician magazines back um q magazines i haven't even started yet they're they're a bit more difficult because they're actually larger size if you recall so they're heavier 
Um, not as easy to bring back, say, a stack of 10 of them in, in my carry-on tote bag. Oh, and my old Grateful Dead cassettes. I've got about half of them here. i got to keep bringing those back. Um, that's about it. Let's see. Yeah, with this whole thing, I wonder if I'll actually be able to fade out some music. If I don't, that's fine. We'll just end with the silence. But anyway, this has been the Conrad Life Report, uh, November 18th. Did I say 17th earlier? Well, it's, it's November 18th. I did the notes for this yesterday, and so the date is yesterday's day, but it's November 18th, um, 2018. From Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, 41 degrees, overcast skies. Um, happy Thanksgiving. Probably won't be here next week, but there'll be something early the week after. Um, and that is all. Take care.